Our scripture passage today comes from John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Hear God's holy and infallible word. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his spirit to help us. So let us begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it gives us light into who you are, to who we are. We pray that it would comfort us and convict us, that it would instruct us and equip us for the work of ministry and for the lives you've called us to. We need your help. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You may be struck if you've been here the past few weeks of how short the scripture reading was today. We've been covering about 20 verses a week. Uh, And here there's this section, uh, and it's just a kind of a transitional uh, description of what's happened as Jesus was in Jerusalem. If you remember the past two uh, events that were recounted in John's gospel was when he changed water to wine, and he was kind of secretive in displaying who he was, and he was very humble in covering over the sins of this man who failed to provide for his guests. And then the next scene was Jesus in the temple driving people out with a whip. And so there was this strong contrast between these pictures of Jesus as the king, the king who is caring and covers over shame of his people, and the king who purifies worship and is zealous for the things that matter most, the worship of God. And so, as John told us at the end of his book, I'm going to tell you this verse every week, he didn't write down everything, right? He tells us, I didn't write everything down, I wrote these things down so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. And so, we have to assume, based on this passage, that Jesus did many other things, because we're told here that people saw the signs that he did, and it caused them to believe. But then you kind of have this phrase that's like, but Jesus didn't really trust those people who believed in him because he knew mankind's condition. He knew what men were really like. And he doesn't just mean males. He means mankind, the human condition. And that's really what we want to focus in on today. Uh, This passage is really preparing us for the next section of John's gospel as Jesus begins to tell people and show people that his kingdom, the work he's doing as a king, is going to be different than maybe they would have expected. He's coming not for external obedience, but for internal change. Have you ever been let down by somebody that you really trusted? Not just like an unmet expectation, but somebody that you just did something you thought was unthinkable for them to do. It caused you to question everything that you thought you knew about that person. 
Uh, perhaps a better phrase is to say, have you ever experienced a scandal? Feel scandalized by the actions of others? Scandals can often strike close to home in our families and marriages, between parents and children, extended family, scandals. They can happen at our workplace. Certainly happen in the political world. You would think anything anybody does is a scandal. And we can't forget that scandal is within the church, historically and currently. There's something common about all scandals. How can people that we so highly regarded who we thought we knew, who we deemed trustworthy, or at least we didn't think were that bad, end up acting in such scandalous ways? The answer is incredibly simple and infinitely complex. At the heart of every scandal, whether it's big or small, I think it could be summed up well with these words from Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The reason things are scandalous is because we can't understand it. The reason scandals happen is because The heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Mankind has an internal, deeply rooted problem with sin. And it doesn't just affect one part of our being. It has reached into all aspects of who we are. It affects our thoughts and our emotions, our reasoning. And ultimately, those internal corruptions bubble up into lived actions, into sins committed, into scandals. We often shift the blame for sin to external factors. Uh, We might think uh, it's the influence of society on somebody that turned them into that type of person. Or it's the result of their upbringing. Or it's their socioeconomic status or their lack of education. Now those may be contributing factors into why we do the things we do, who we are as individuals... But there's something far deeper in mankind that Jesus is calling out here. Evil comes from within. It's throughout scripture. Jesus puts it this way in Mark chapter 7. He says this. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within. They defile a person. We have to reckon our understanding of sin as being an internal problem. Certainly exasperated by external circumstances. Jesus' list here is not exhaustive, but it is certainly broad. And cutting 
and it points out what he's drawing at here, that he knew what was in man. He didn't need anybody to tell him what man was truly like. He knows what's within the heart of the people who are following him, those who have professed to believe in his name. And so Jesus isn't done telling us about what kind of king he is. In fact, that's what he's continuing to do now. We really have two points today, and that is that Jesus is a king for sinners. And that Jesus is a king over sin. Sometimes we like to think that people who are believers um, are less prone to sin. Or that now that we are in Christ, we've become better in some way. In fact, it's kind of one of these ways that we see sin reaching deeply into our minds and hearts. How we get ourselves off the hook for sin. Perhaps a silly example, but uh, I've only probably met two people in my life who've confessed to be bad drivers. Everybody else, uh, you would think, is the best driver and that everybody else on the highway around them is a terrible driver. Right? The guy who's cutting you off or leaves the blinker on or goes too slow in the fast lane. Why is everybody such a bad driver? Because implied in that is that we're good drivers. And, you know, the time that I cut that guy off or I left my blinker on for like 30 minutes while I was traveling or when I, you know, whatever I did, when I was texting and I, whoa, that was an exception. I'm not a bad driver. We're all bad drivers. That's how it works. We all make mistakes. We're all prone to the same failures. And that's at this real low level, right? It's the same thing as sin gets more and more deep. We want to excuse ourselves, think of ourselves as the exception, think of our actions as not as bad, and think of others as worse. But notice that this passage is aimed at those people who believed in him. Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem and say, I don't trust any men in the world. He says, those who believed in his name, he didn't trust. They had a problem. And Jesus was wise enough to be diligent to avoid entrusting himself to them. Jesus knows that those who believe in him are possibly and very likely seeking after wrong things. They're seeking power. They want to be part of this new kingdom. They see Jesus driving people out of the temple, and they're like, I'm going to be on his side, the guy with the whip. Perhaps it's kind of a novelty. New experience. Oh, there's this new guy coming to town, teaching something different, showing up and doing things that are hard to explain. Later on, Jesus will rebuke people for following him for food. People following him for food, and, you know, who wouldn't want to see a show? I don't know what entertainment looked like in the first century, but miraculous acts at the hands of a man, debates in the temple between Jesus and the religious leaders, certainly would be intriguing. Jesus knows that those who believe in him will be fickle, they will be untrustworthy, and they will be divided in their loyalty. 
The people who flock to Jesus are sinners. It's often said, uh, there's this phrase, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, which is just a fancy way of saying, right thinking leads to right action. If we have the right understanding of something, then we will act correctly. There's some truth to that. We need to know how to act rightly. We need to know the rules to play the game. Apostle Paul says, I wouldn't know sin but by the law. I wouldn't know it was wrong to covet if the law didn't say you shall not covet. But there's some truth missing in this statement. Because it fails to account for our longings. It fails to account for our passions, our emotions. We aren't merely rational beings. Heart, soul, mind, body. Right thinking leading to right action doesn't account for man's heart motivations. It fails to account for sin. It makes the answer for sin information. If there is any need to truly grow in our knowledge, to grow in our thinking, it is that we must grow in our knowledge of sin. There is something about the work of God in our lives that I don't want to undermine. That there are, there's progress to be made in our lives as those whom God's spirit indwells. As he calls us to himself and he is at work renewing us. And yet, the idea of Christian maturity, of growing into maturity, of being made more and more holy has been a topic of church discussion for the ages, and there's been more faithful understanding of what that ought to be, and then there's been very erroneous understandings of what we can expect in this life. Some people would like to posit to you that becoming a Christian, you'll become perfect in this life, that you can fully overcome your sin, that you can become like Jesus. In fact, if you don't become like Jesus, then you might not have any assurance that he's really at work in your life. You might hear somebody say, I don't have that big a problem with sin anymore, just maybe a little bit with anger or, you know, that's, that is not Christian maturity. We must grow in our knowledge of sin. Indeed, the Lord delivers us and enables us to die more and more to sin, but it also enables us to see more and more the depth of our sin. 1 John chapter 1 says this, if we, ha- if we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Jesus is a king for sinners. 1 Timothy chapter 1 says that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. The Apostle Paul wrote those words. The Apostle Paul is saying he is the greatest sinner. I can't think of an example of somebody who's more... Christian maturity example than the Apostle Paul, who as he grew in his maturity, as the Spirit is at work in his life, as he is going out and spreading the gospel to all the nations, he is continually confronted with how sinful he is. 
He talks about this in Romans chapter 7. He says, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. I'm warring against the spirit in the flesh. I know I ought not to do these things, and yet that's what my flesh wants to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. The people who spent three years with Jesus the night before he was betrayed sat down and he broke bread and he told them that one of them was going to betray them, betray him. One of you is going to betray me. I would hope these men have come to some maturity. Three years with Jesus, that's more than we'll have in this life. And they were sorrowful when they heard this and they began to say to him one after another, he said, I, Lord, What a response. One of you is going to betray me. I bet it's him. That's what we would think, right? I bet it's that guy. I bet it's Judas. I know that Judas guy is a bad apple, right? No, they looked to themselves knowing that they were capable of perhaps the greatest scandal in the history of the world, to betray the Son of God. human condition, the the result of sin in the world is so deep in our hearts. And as we grow in Christian maturity, as we belong to King Jesus, the King of sinners, we ought to grow in our knowledge of this sin, not to deny it. If given the chance, we would be like Peter and deny Jesus three times, right? We would be like Thomas and doubt it unless we saw it for ourselves. We would be like Judas and think getting 30 shekels of silver is worth it. We don't like to think of ourselves like that. But that's how the apostles thought of themselves. That's how Christian maturity has been birthed in their lives. That when they see scandal, they don't think, how can somebody do that? They think, Lord, help me from not doing the same thing. See, our understanding of sin, the heinousness of sin, is the other side of the gospel. If we are not sinners, we have no need of Christ. Remember the words of Jesus, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Not those who don't need a, the healthy people don't need a doctor, the sick people do. And so Jesus is calling us calling us to confess that we are sinners, that we are wretched, that we are just moments away from scandal at any time. That if the social pressures that we have that we don't even think about were removed, we'd be like no better than anybody else who's acting in a way for those who have been removed. We ought not to presume that somebody is better uh, above scandal. Your, your favorite teacher, your loved ones, your pastor, yourself. None of us are above scandal, and having a healthy understanding of sin in the world helps us to live wisely. And it helps us to acknowledge our need. Because here is the hope. Jesus isn't just the king of sinners. He doesn't just get a bunch of people and berate them for how sinful they are. Jesus is going to, in the chapters ahead, Explain how he is the king over sin. 
He is not merely a human king looking for external obedience. He is the king of our internal motivations. He knows our thoughts and judges them. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't leave the Ten Commandments at the lowest level. He makes them way higher. He makes the standard far greater. It's not about adultery. It's about lust. It's not about murder. It's about hatred. The internal motivations, the passions and thoughts of people's hearts. That's what Jesus is after in his kingdom. It's incredibly difficult for us to have an objective view of our own sin because it's so pervasive. And as helpful as it is to dwell upon the things that we've done wrong, one of the ways in which we can see how great our sin is is to look to the price that had to be paid for it. I remember explaining to one of my children once about the sin that they had committed. We talked through why it's a sin. At the end, you have to say, well, what's the result of our sin? How can our sin be made right? Something we think is so little, right? We stole something. I said a lie. Somebody had to die. Somebody had to die. And not just somebody. The Son of God, the perfect, holy, righteous Son of God. Jesus is the king of sinners who is willing to pay for the sake of those in his kingdom. Bearing their scorn, their shame, their abuse, their pain, and their bloody deaths so that they don't have to. There's a promise throughout the Old Testament about the coming of the new covenant in Christ that we see in Christ's blood. The promise that God was not going to just restore Israel in some physical way, but that he would do a work that they had never seen before. That he would take their heart of stone and remove it and give them a heart of flesh that would cause them to walk in his ways, to love his law. That he would sprinkle them clean, purify them. Last week we talked about how Jesus is purifying worship The other thing Jesus is doing is purifying the worshipers. It's the hope that we long for. Jesus is the king of sinners, and he's the one who is going to do the work to help us in our sin. To change our hearts. To come and to prod us in the inner being. He doesn't want just right thinking. Because right thinking doesn't always lead to right action. He wants to make our heart right. Right motivations. Put a right spirit within you. Because it's out of our motivations, out of our loves, that we truly act. When we grow in our love for somebody, we act lovingly towards them. And as God is pouring out his love on us and his spirit is at work in us. And as we look to the heinous sin that we've committed that has caused Christ to have to die for us. As he is working in us that 
miraculous work. It will overflow in right action. Not perfect action in this life. And we must live in this already not yet reality. Already not yet. We are already declared perfect and righteous in God's sight because of Jesus' perfect righteous life. And yet... We have to war against it again and again, day after day, seeking his mercies each morning. We are already being sanctified, made holy before him, and yet we are sinners. And if we confess we have no sin, the truth is not in us. How do these exist together? That is the tension we live in. That God is truly at work within us as we are bringing our sin to Christ. You see, if we don't see our sin for what it is, we can't bring it to the cross to die. And that is how we will continue to grow in our knowledge of sin. Not needing to hide from it in shame. But having confidence that as we see it, as we dwell on it, we have a place to bring it. And we can hope for the day when we will no longer wage against it. Let us not presume that we are above scandal. Let us not look to those who do scandalous things and think, how could they do such a thing? May God give us the grace to look at our hearts for who we truly are. To know that we are no greater than anybody else. We too are... Moments away from scandal in our own lives. Jesus is the king of sinners. Praise God. Because he is the one who can overcome our sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for revealing to us our need of Christ. That as we look to your law... And the things you command us to do, we realize we can do none of them. But that you have given us a way. A way to be made right, a way to be accepted, a way for our sin to be dealt with. Help us to look to our King, to trust in what he has done for us. And to live into the new reality he is doing in our hearts put to death our sin and to live into the new life of Christ. We need your spirit to help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.